Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the rested but by no means ready edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, back from two weeks in my hard scrabble paradise in Maine. So nice to be back with you guys, but I'm by no means ready. I'm rested, but by no means ready. But by no means ready? No, not at all. Like, I'm just like, I mean, I don't feel, I kind of just mentally, philosophically believe I'm not going to check back in until Labor Day. I may be here working, but no one needs to know that. Well, I'm, well, ba- I'm glad you're here because it was hard. It was really hard hosting the show without you. And you did I a great am, job. I'm not rested. I'm not recuperated, I'm not tanned, and I'm sure as hell not ready. So I'm glad you're back, Shane. Well, I'm back, I'm to be I'm back, back tomorrow. from Israel, where I uh, did not get much rest. I bet. And so I'm not even rested and also not ready. So yeah. you're one step ahead of the two of us. Well, that's good. So at least I'm rested. But maybe you guys will get a vacation. You, know, and you still have a few weeks to go and enjoy summer before it's over. Hmm. You're gonna go to. You're going to England next That's week. That's true. I am. I am what? stealing three days next week. And Just going. to jot off to England. Yes. Yeah. Just hang out and. Because I heard it's not parties. 95 degrees and humid there. You'll go anywhere it's not 95 degrees. Anywhere. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> it was not 95 degrees in Maine. It was awesome. It was blissful. Um, but thank you for holding down the fort while I was gone. It, it was a great show. I did my best. You, you did know. awesome. You did awesome. I also introduced my mother to podcasts, by the way, while I was on vacation. How did so that go over? She was astonished to know that they exist and what they are. It was like That's I ser- cool. it seriously like I gave her part of her life back, so now she doesn't have to like mark out the hours of the day that she has to be sitting by the radio to listen to her favorite shows. <laughs> and then she's like, "What are podcasts?" I'm like, "It's almost like radio for the internet." I have one. What do you mean you have one? So, mom, if you're listening, welcome. Uh, welcome, welcome, Shane's, Shane's mom. mom. This is the Welcome Shane's Mom edition. It yes. is. Do you know your mother's listening? <laughs> okay, let's. Get I said to... a bad word. I'm sorry. We, we will try to keep it clean for mom. <laughs> there may be some bad words. God mom. damn it! Nothing she <laughs> no shit she hasn't heard before. Okay, so this week on the show, uh, the top ISIS fighter in U.S. custody is being transferred to Iraqi authorities. What's it mean for the U.S. justice system and the future of detainee policy in the war with ISIS? Also, two years after the first Snowden leaks, are we over the idea of the idealistic whistleblower? We're so over that. We'll get you, to that. You were over, over it at the very beginning. You were over beginning. it when it came. Yeah, you've always been over it. Uh, and later, a photo essay on strategic Jerusalem. I'll talk more about that, plus our object lesson segment. Um, I will kick this off with wordplay, uh, which this week is going to be... A story that I wrote. I am ready and rested. Wait, you you write stories? I wrote a story. I oh wrote a my story. God. I really was trying to hide from my Are you a journalist editors, or apparently. something? Yeah, allegedly. Yeah, they, t- they took away my card. But uh, this was uh, actually a very interesting story. So as many people are probably already know by now, Um Sayef, the wife of Abu Sayef, uh, who is uh, the sort of chief financial officer of ISIS, and Um Sayef, his wife, uh, was largely responsible for helping organize the capture and enslavement of women, particularly Yazidi women, 
um, in Iraq, uh, is being transferred to Iraqi custody. Why is that significant? Um, she has been implicated in not only the hostage taking and the sexual enslavement of women, but also in the capture and eventual death of Kayla Mueller, a U.S. aid worker who died while in ISIS custody, and it came out last week, uh, was apparently um, a, uh, sexually abused and raped by um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS. So Um Sayyaf played a very uh, apparently instrumental role in that, but during her interrogations with U.S. officials gave up Intelligence officials say a lot of useful information about the organization and how it works. She's now being transferred to uh, the Kurdish regional government, not to Baghdad, uh, which apparently wanted nothing to do with her. And the Kurds will try her not for the crimes associated with Kayla Mueller, which officials told us this week they feel like they may not have enough evidence to convict her of in a U.S. court, but rather for the crimes of capturing and selling Yazidi women and girls. So... Two things come up, and I want to sort of my questions to you guys are: one, um, is this justice for you know an American hostage um, who died while at least partially in this woman's custody? Uh, and the second is, what does this mean about the future of ISIS detainees? Because one of the interesting reasons why we decided to transfer her to Iraqi custody it was that according to Iraq's constitution, they cannot surrender for extradition an Iraqi citizen to a foreign government. So that was apparently never on the table. Um, and does this mean that now if we capture any Iraqi ISIS fighters, wherever we capture them, because we captured her in Syria and took her back to Iraq, essentially they are Iraq's problem. But I've, I've never understood this argument, because they wouldn't surrender them to foreign prosecution. She was in our custody. We've surrendered her to them. So why couldn't we have decided, assuming we had the evidence to bring the Kayla Mueller case, not to surrender that to them? That doesn't violate their constitution. It doesn't implicate their constitution. Well, but hang on a second. Under what authority are American officials in Iraq, or was she in American custody in Iraq? Um, AUMF. AUMF, right. We don't have a SOFA with the Iraqi government. Remember, a status of forces agreement. Our people are there at the sufferance of the Iraqi government. Whatever they're doing, they're doing because the Iraqi government lets them do. And but she so, was captured in Syria. And yes, also so the temporary forces there to, do have a status of forces kind of quasi-agreement. Right, but we didn't have to bring her back to Iraq for questioning. But once we brought her back to Iraq for questioning, what happened to her after that, the Baghdad government would be implicated in whether they gave explicit approval or disapproval or not. And so... We, you know, to the extent that we have an interest in seeing the Iraqi government um, appear to be in front of its people complying with its own constitution, and we surely do have such an interest, it would not have been a smart idea once she was already in Iraq for, for questioning and intelligence purposes to um, whisk her away against their preferences. I think the U.S. government probably had little choice to, but to accede to their preferences. Now, you may ask, why bring her back to Iraq in the first place? Why not take her from Syria somewhere else? Um, and maybe that would have been a smarter play if the U.S. goal was to bring her back here for criminal prosecution. But that's not what they did. I, I just, I mean, that all of that sounds like a perfectly reasonable thing. It does not seem to me to implicate the Iraqi constitutional prohibition against surrendering somebody you don't, in fact, have custody over. And so I, I wonder if it was a... Uh, you know, a, a sort of 
convenient excuse for the United States, which actually didn't have enough evidence to bring a case against her, and for the Iraqi government, which gets to sort of do a little bit of, hey, you know, we prevented our person from being transferred. Um, but I, I, I've never understood what the substance, you know, they make it sound like a, like a legal prohibition, and I'm not sure I understand that. I don't, I don't either, and I'm not sure, quite frankly, that the administration does either. I mean, I posed this question to a senior official yesterday in my reporting and said, wait a minute, she was in our custody, and we captured her in Syria. We took her to Iraq, but she was in our custody. And you also talk about, use the term, transferring her to the Iraqi, to Iraqi custody. So you made the decision to transfer her out of our custody. Why was it ever even, you know, why was she Iraq's to give away or not give away? And I didn't get a straight answer for that. And I think there hasn't been a really great straight answer for that either. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably more a political judgment than a legal judgment based on everything you're saying. But I don't think it's an unreasonable political judgment for the United States government, yeah. particularly if they didn't think they had a good criminal case in U.S. courts. But the other thing in your story, Shane, that I thought was interesting was the implication um, by the U.S. officials you spoke to that, well, the Kurds will make sure there's swift justice. And that's yeah. that's better than we could do. <laughs> right. Well, this is, a, yeah. yeah. You know, so basically, like, they'll, they'll, this will be a summary trial and maybe a summary execution. And right. uh, we'll all be happier that way. And that was kind of a chilling... Um, <laughs> what, do you, what do we know about the Kurdish justice? I mean, the Kurdish regions are, you know, relatively... Uh, democratically run compared right. to other parts of Iraq. What? Re- the relatively being an operative term sure. there. Right. But, but they're not without institutions. Do we know anything about their justice institutions? I, I don't know a lot. I mean, I know from people I talked to who were in touch with, uh, uh, Kurdish officials about this that, you know, she'll be charged specifically on the, on the, uh, uh, kidnapping and the sale of sexual enslavement of these girls. Now, how Which the, is a crime that took place on Iraqi territory. Correct, and took place jurisdictionally within an area that, that the Kurdish authorities control, or at least have some, uh, uh, you know, um, claim, of, claim over. Exactly, because in Sinjar, uh, in the north of Iraq. So they have that case, and they have a terrorism case against her. The Baghdad authorities, I was told, sort of said, we have enough bad guys without having to deal with this. I can't imagine that we would not hand her over to any authority that we did not think was going to at least have some credibility of a fair trial and an efficient system. She was visited by the International Committee for the Red Cross while she was in U.S. custody. Uh, I can't say for sure whether that's happened now that she's with um, the authorities in Erbil, but one presumes that they would be willing to grant that access. I don't know why they wouldn't be willing to grant it. Um, but, uh, you know, bringing her here, it would have been a spectacle. It would have taken a lot longer. Um, it, there was the possibility of then having to bring what Yazidi girls over to the United States to testify against her. Um, you had the issue of the fact that she was interrogated by this high-value interrogation team, which specifically extracts information not to be used at a criminal trial, and it questions somebody outside, often the presence of a lawyer. It would have been a mess. And you know, my understanding from talking to officials about this is that. That was essentially the case that was also made to Kayla Mueller's family. And they went to them a day before she was being, Um Sayyaf was to be transferred, said, listen, this is what's going to happen here. Here's how it's going to go. And, you know, we do think that she will get justice. And the family appears to be fine with that. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it does, it does, you know, raise the question of even though she's not being tried for Kayla's abduction and rape and death, 
you know, is it still justice? And I suppose this is analogous to cases where, you know, someone who's killed people in two states is tried for one set of crimes but not the other. And, you know... Um, right, well, and let's remember that the other person who was primarily responsible for Kayla Mueller's captivity was killed in that airstrike. Exactly. Yeah. So. yeah, Yeah. I mean, it happens all the time, particularly with people who have, you know, multiple terrible things that they've done. Look at Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's, among other things, proudly confessed to having cut off Danny Pearl's head with mm-hmm. his as he put it, blessed right hand, um, he's never going to be charged right. with that. And and that's, you have to kind of fold that into whatever justice he gets in the context of a military commission for 9-11. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure if Umsayef were given the chance, she probably would rather come to the United States to face charges. But, yeah, so we will we'll see what swift Kurdish justice looks like mm-hmm. very soon. Stay tuned. Yep. Uh, okay, tomorrow, let's go on to uh, your wordplay. The thrill is gone from leaking. <laughs> well, that's the question, is whether the thrill is gone from leaking. So this um, question was prompted by a story that came out uh, this morning by Eli Lake and Josh Rogan um, about Edward Snowden's window for a plea deal uh, with the U.S. government closing. And I don't think there's anything particularly new about this story, um, that Snowden's value to the U.S. government goes down down as the government finds other ways of getting information on what exactly he stole and where it is now and um, and simply as time passes. Um, but I think what, what I found interesting about the story was, you know, they were reminding uh, readers the extent to which Snowden's fate is really in the hands of... Um, of the Russian government and which could kick him out of the country at any time. And, uh, and it's not as though he's living a glamorous life there. He's pretty constrained, um, financially in terms of physical movement. And it's a very precarious, uh, um, sanctuary, if that's what you want to call it. And it, it led me to think too about Julian Assange, who's not exactly living large these days and is, you know, under the threat of prosecution for, rape um, in his home country. And, you know, and and Bradley, Ch- sorry, Chelsea Manning, who um, is under very severe constraints uh, in military prison. It suggests to me that while there was a moment um, a few years ago when these leakers seemed to be, you know, the, the t- small guy going up against the big government machine, um, pricking uh, the big government machine on behalf of the little guy, and they were celebrated a little bit in popular culture, um, tilting at this windmill. Now they seem to be some pretty sorry characters. And uh, it's, I don't know whether we would say that what they've done has changed the world or changed government policy or changed politics in any significant way. Um, but I think what we can say is that they garner a lot less public attention and sympathy than um, certainly their own vision of their mission would suggest. Is that because of where their circumstances have led them now? Because they're, you know, in a prison in Manning's case, holed up in an embassy next to Herod's in Assange's case, and, you know, off in Russia someplace. We don't see these guys anymore. Or is it just because their circumstances are actually pretty miserable and somebody who might leak would look at this and be like, God, if this is what's in store for me, 
why would I ever do it? Well, I think that's more the point, isn't it? That, you know, you're not, you're not going to be held up as a hero by the world. You're not going to be feted. You're not going to get a Nobel Prize. Um, you're going to lead a pretty pathetic existence. But Snowden and, and Manning and Assange, too, I think have been, you know, lionized. And, and for many people, what they did was heroic. I guess the question I would have loved to have for them is, like, you know, does that get you through the day? Do you <laughs> know what I mean? Question, you know, yeah. it's like, and you're Julian Assange, and you're trapped in these two little rooms in an embassy with is, vitamin D deficiency. Right. Apparently. I mean, it's pretty bad. I mean, is that enough? <laughs> I mean, you know. I mean, I think that look, they're very differently situated. Manning is in a in a a brig, um, you know, in a in a in a prison, serving a long sentence. Julian Assange is in a very nice prison called the Ecuadorian Embassy. But he's pretty... It's kind of a small building, though. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, you know, any any room becomes a prison if you can't yeah. leave it. Yeah, he can't right. get outside. Um, you know, Snowden, on the other hand, is uh, relatively free. He's just relatively free, subject to the whim of a dictator to whom he might not always be useful. Right. And one of the things that I think, you know, um, you know, it's a point that... that the authors of, of this story made, but it's also, you know, a point that I've made in the past is that, you know, Putin's, Putin uses Snowden because Snowden is useful. And, and if there comes a time at which it, Snowden would be more useful as a gesture to the United States, uh, all he has to do is revoke his permit, um, to be there. And there's no one else in the world that's likely to take uh, Snowden, which was why he was stuck in the airport for so long, because he couldn't find he couldn't a place. go anywhere else. He couldn't yeah. go anywhere else. And so, you know, I think Snowden's situation isn't that bad right now, if you don't mind living in Moscow, but it could get a whole lot worse. And uh, I think it is interesting that post-Snowden there have not been a rash of Snowden imitators. And I think if you look at... That we know about. That we know about. And I think if you look at the sequence of what happened to Manning, Assange... And the Assange case is weird because he's wanted on something that has nothing to do with... The leaking. With with the leaking. With publishing, yeah. Um, But... um, You know, and Snowden... You know, I think there is something to be said that this, you know... You know, Tom Drake is working in the Apple store in, in Bethesda. And, uh, you know, there's, like, it, it does not work out as celebrity. These people don't end up being Daniel Ellsberg. And I wonder, too, I mean, how much, given, especially given what we have, how we have all kind of collectively learned more about encryption as a result of this uh, uh, series of leaks by Snowden. <clears throat> you know, I, I've maintained for a long time that the reason that the Obama administration was cracking down on leakers so much was not out of some kind of anti-leaking ideology was because it was just getting a lot easier to catch them, given that we just leave more fingerprints digitally. Mm. And because the magnitude of the damage has gotten so much higher. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, uh, so there's definitely a strong motivation to clamp down on them for sure. Um, but it made me wonder if, you know, leakers have gotten, like, a lot smarter and have just figured out, like, hey, if you're going to do this, don't do it in the way that you know, Manning may have done it where you give it to a website and maybe you can be tracked, uh, or don't do it in the way that Snowden did where you come and publicly identify yourself, which still sort of makes him a unique case in that he decided to come out and identify himself. Maybe they're just getting better and are going to look, you know, that the leaking will still happen and we just won't know. Or maybe 
potential leakers have figured out that if they really want to be lionized by the public, what they have to do is expose the vulnerability of the OPM database or post all the clients of Ashley Madison online. Oh, yeah. Although, I, I, you, know, you know... Maybe that's what the public really wants to celebrate. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're writing about today at the Daily Beast. <laughs> yeah, that's a very interesting... Well, it, I, I, it's going to be... I mean, that one thing I thought that would what was also interesting about Josh and Eli's story is, I think they quoted both Glenn Greenwald and Ben Wisner, uh, who is one of Snowden's lawyers, sort of saying, like, look, I mean, he's gone to Russia. He's living a fulfilling life. He can do this, which I think was sort of their way of saying... Maybe not, I wouldn't say it's encouraging others, but saying, you know, there is it's light at the end. Bad, right, yeah. there's light at the end of the tunnel. Once you do this, you can have a life. Obviously kind of leaving out, as you just said, that this, this is all subject to the whims, uh, of someone else who would, you know, potentially just, you know, end that for you right away. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's as you say tomorrow, I would think it's a lot more of a dire, anxiety-ridden kind of existence that maybe they're making it out to be. Well, and maybe what what scares the public about government information collection is not, in fact, classified information and secrets. Maybe what scares the public is the ordinary stuff that bad guys, criminals, and others can get access to, like, you know, all the personal information people submitted to OPM to get their security clearances. Right, right. Okay, Ben. You have a photo essay on strategic Jerusalem. Uh, yeah, so my my wordplay. So artistic of you. Ben. My wordplay is like a, 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 an image tells a thousand words. Play. Well, so then there are a lot of thousands of words. And wordplay because there's ten photographs. Ooh, it's wow. ten thousand so, words. So that's ten thousand words plus the words. There are some words. In oh, there you too. get to have your photographs and your words too. And huh? I get to eat them too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. So I was in Jerusalem this past week. And uh, I was mostly there talking to uh, Palestinians of, of uh, different sorts. Um, but along the way, um, I was given this, I thought, quite remarkable tour by a, uh, a gentleman named Ron uh, Schatzberg, um, who is a you know, Israeli peace negotiator type as well as a former military guy, a reserve colonel. And he took us around to the many strategic flashpoints of Jerusalem to try to explain both uh, Israeli and Palestinian concerns about, for example, Israeli building, why the Israelis build on this particular hill, why Palestinians are anxious about that or furious about that, uh, how close things are together, what role the separation barrier, the wall, is playing and why it's routed the way it is, what kind of disruptions that creates. It was one of the most informative, you know, this is an area that I've, I'm not unfamiliar with, but I had never gone from hill to hill looking at the specific neighborhoods in question. Um, and so when we did, I just took a lot of pictures of them. And I annotated those on Lawfare on Monday. Um, and I have to say, the experience uh, really did change my view of a few things um, in Jerusalem. And I, uh, if at, at the risk of self-promotion, urge readers who think they know what they think about Jerusalem to take a look at these pictures um, and to uh, read the accompanying text and, you know, 
maybe it will reinforce your senses of uh, what the right answers are. It did not reinforce my, the experience of going to these various places did not reinforce my pre-existing sense of... What changed for you? What, what, what about what? What did this change in your in your perception? Well, it, two things, and they push in very different directions. So, I've never been a fan of settlements, and I, I've always opposed settlement building. But I, I think the seeing these neighborhoods that successive Israeli governments have built, and also that are threatening to build, really gives you an understanding of, you know how Palestinians feel squeezed in Jerusalem, squeezed both in the sense of um, that the, the need to protect these settlements or these neighborhoods really impinges upon their day-to-day lives, but also in the sense that it eats up <coughs> key land, strategic land that cuts up possible future capital of their state and also cuts it off from the rest of the West Bank. And and so I was, I, I was, you know, that's sort of in some ways what I expected, but I was really more struck by it than I expected to be, I suppose. On, on the other hand, the other, the other factor, though, is just looking at the proximity of these neighborhoods. I don't understand anymore how you can divide up Jerusalem in a fashion that does not cause either, in in a permanent sense, a giant wall to run through Jerusalem, or that subjects, you know, failing that, that you have some vehicle for real protection against major rashes of terrorist attacks. And I, I think there's, you know, a lot of a lot of the people that I spoke to, a lot of Palestinians, you know, when I would ask them okay, but how do you convince Israelis who have a recent memory of the rash of suicide bombings that took place between 2000 and 2005 that opening up these separation barriers and having a kind of united Jerusalem with a Palestinian capital in one side and a Jewish capital in the other don't, doesn't, you know, expose people to, you know, the risk of, you know, very serious violence, and I, I just did not get a satisfying answer to that question at all. And so I was, I guess it pushed me in two very different, very conflicting directions. You know, it's fascinating to me every time I visit Jerusalem just how much the topography has changed over the last 20 years um, of visiting Jerusalem. And... Um, it used to be that Jerusalem was a place where, and this is something both sides of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict took a certain degree of pride in, a, a place where Israelis and Palestinians necessarily lived cheek by jowl and interacted daily in a whole variety of ways. And that's still true to a degree for um, Jews and, and Arab residents of Jerusalem. Um, but it is so much less true today than it, it was 20 years ago. The Second Intifada um, really shifted the balance of Israeli policy from you keeping Jerusalem unified to separating populations. And so today, Jerusalem is, in effect, in, in many ways that you document, already divided. 
Um, and, you know, that, that cheek by jowl daily interaction in some ways reinforced both to Israelis and Palestinians the necessity of finding a mechanism for coexistence because there they were dealing with each other every day. Physical separation of populations to a certain extent makes Israelis and Palestinians feel the imperative of coexistence less. And also the necessity that led to that separation makes them feel like the possibility of coexistence is, you know, less and less real. And, and so there's a self-reinforcing component, I think, to the physical changes in Jerusalem that are quite depressing when you contemplate the long-term implications. Do you guys come up in your recent trips, and I've only been to Jerusalem once, but do you come away feeling more optimistic about the future or just more fatalistic about it? I mean, I was, I was impressed with the fact that most of the people who were our hosts when we were there really just sort of saw, this is the way things will just always be. It'll never get any better. And it's just the way it is. And it was this very fatalistic kind of attitude. You know, fatalism would... It, it might even be justifiable if the status quo had some sustainability to it, but it doesn't, in fact. And I think last year was a good reminder of that. Um, we think of last summer as characterized primarily between the war, by the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, but the tensions were building over the course of the summer and after the Gaza war in and around Jerusalem. Um, you know, I was there last summer and, and saw, um, places where, uh, tram stations, a tram that supposedly unites Jewish and Arab neighborhoods, uh, had been firebombed and vandalized, um, in the course of that violence. And so I think it's, I think it's not a sustainable situation. And, um, and if active steps are not constantly taken to manage and mitigate tension, it will blow up regularly, and uh, and the only lasting solution to that is a lasting peace, and that's very very hard to envision. Yeah. Well, definitely check out, uh, listeners, the uh, the photo essay that Ben did. The photos are great. Thank you. Yeah. By the way, they're all these sort of like wonderful kind of sweeping, panoramic yes. shots taken kind of at high angles. So are. remember, a few weeks ago, I, I sh my object lesson was my new camera with which I was joining the surveillance oh, society. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, and you both mocked me, but here it is. The fruits of your the your fruits craziness. of my insanity. Um, yeah, these are some pretty astonishing pictures too. And you just you do see the degree to which it is a city that is just just these like spines of divisions just kind of moving all through. Yeah. And for those listeners who have been to Jerusalem, um, unless you have made a point of going to these places. You have not seen them. That's fascinating. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. very I easy to visit Jerusalem yeah. and, and not even know that these physical barriers and these divisions exist. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, um, thanks, Ben. Uh, all right, so let's move on to object lessons. I'll go. I'll go first. Or do you want to go first? Can we go first? Go ahead. My object lesson actually is it's it's um, I'm still on summer time, so I'm going to talk about what's on my summer reading list, uh, including a book that I have not yet. You're finished. still doing summer reading? Sure. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, I I'm admire your restedness. I'm doing it. I have like one, what do you have, like one week of summer left. I'm going to do it. Actually, Soak it weeks, up, man. Two weeks of summer left. Labor Day is not till two weeks from now. Uh, but I am reading a book that I shamefully have never read, uh, being an intelligence uh, journalist, such uh, as The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Such an amazing book. John Le Carre. One of the two or three greatest spy novels ever written. Yeah, it's terrific. And I'm also enjoying the... Uh, 
Uh, besides it just being a great story, and I'm only halfway through, and I just can't wait to see kind of what happens next. Um, this both the structure of it is very pleasing in the way that it, it's presented, but also I, 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 I forgive me for not remembering the year that it was written. But you go sixty three, sixty three, because Kennedy is president in the book, and you go and you read this and you think. If you didn't know what year it was written, you might be mistaken in thinking that this was a book that was just filled with all kinds of spy novel tropes, except this is probably from the author who invented many of said spy novel tropes. And it's kind of amazing to read it and see just how well it holds up Mm -hmm. and how tightly and crisply it's written uh, for, you know, an author who clearly had a lot of insight into a very strange world, and I'm sure when it came out, it made a lot of people very nervous about how it was that he knew all of these things. Um, but he just writes kind of effortlessly about it, and it's just, it's great. I, it's, it's a terrific book. And it was also made into what I think is the greatest spy movie ever made with uh, Richard Burton uh, and, and Claire Bloom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a terrific uh, black-and-white uh, so stark. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful movie. Yeah, Terrible and it brings a, visited too. indeed, yes. and it brings alive that Cold War mentality. I think one of the things that's so striking about the spy that came in from the cold is, you know, that how much it reveals the mentality of people who work in that world, which is that the world is full of bad people. It's a conflict-ridden world. It's yeah. a nasty, dishonest, miserable place, and you just have to do the best you can to advance your your interests and your goals there's nothing um glamorous there's nothing moralistic right right and they do play with a lot of these questions of what do you believe and why do you do this and Liam is the main character sort of you know it's at least halfway through the book it's not clear why the hell he's doing any of this yeah and it's really i mean it's just sort of a that kind of like almost just neutral spirit of him you know this is just what he does uh, uh, it makes it really compelling. It's a great read. I, now also that Joe told me that it was a movie, we were on vacation with Richard Burton. I can't not see Richard Burton. <laughs> Wait, you were head. on vacation with Richard Burton? Yeah, oh, I, yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and, his, and his jewels. Well, Elizabeth Taylor's jewels, maybe. So can I contrast your object mm-hmm. of the anti-glamorous spy novel yeah. with my object, which relates to the most glamorous spy movie to have come out in years? Spy? Um, no, Man from <laughs> Uncle. Oh, that's out now. Yeah. yeah, which is all great fun and a wonderful action movie and incredibly stylish yeah. Guy Ritchie directed tale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's Army Hammer and uh, uh, and uh, it's Superman Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill. Yeah, yes, yeah. and uh, and it's such a beautifully done kind of sixties glamour film. And one of the things that I was really struck by watching it last week with my kids was the sunglasses. Everyone wore these massive, really uh, overdone, colorful sunglasses. Kind of mod, yeah. Yes, very mod. And um, and I had just happened to get in the mail these massive Those are glasses. big. Oh, my God. So am I mod or what? You're very mod. These might be go. the geekiest, stylish glasses that, Those uh, are that I will ever own. These are not just cool sunglasses, but they are anti-glare glasses to allow me to work on my computer and my smartphone without strain. Oh, really? And so like I when you're can outside? Do that. Well, even when I'm inside. Wow. Um, like the glare from the computer screens, your eyes don't get fatigued. That's the theory. We'll see. But in the meantime, I can look awesome doing it. And here is Henry Cavill. Looking awesome in looking his oversized sunglasses. Hot. 
He is hot. It's the man from HOT. <laughs> I'm just going to watch it with the sound off. Yeah, you should, because yeah. the plot so doesn't matter. <laughs> like, the movie's stupid. It just looks great. <laughs> All right, uh, so I'm going to keep my mod sunglasses You totally keep your mod sunglasses. They look like Bono, kind of. Ooh, thank yeah, you. you're welcome. All right. Um, ben, what is your object? Well, I woke up this morning, and uh, somebody had emailed me uh, an advertisement for the tiniest drone commercially available in the world. Wait, was this from from our solicitation? Where we solicited people to send us No, 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 no. This was just a friend who sent oh, okay. me an ad Damn. for it. It fits on your fingertip. It's about the size of a quarter. It's a quadcopter, and it's going to cost $35. And I think Lawfare no is going to buy going to buy several dozen of them to give away as It's like a battery power. Yeah, it's got a 5 to 7 minute battery battery charge. Just it's very cute. Enough. Um, and I thought, well, I, that should be my object lesson, except that it doesn't exist yet. Oh, um, so instead, uh, I am, have brought um, Quinta Jurassics. Uh, our intern has a scale model, a 1 to 87 scale model of an MQ-1 Predator, complete with Hellfire missiles, and, and a stand. Um, yeah, no, no, and and its little propeller turns in the back. It's uh, cooler than cool. So we will post a uh, oh, a, a, and we will post a photo of it on the website. Where did she get this uh, said said drone? So I think Quinta did her uh, her senior thesis on drone strikes and reports that she was completely obsessed with drones. And as a result, some of her friends got together and gave her a, a, a 1 to 87 so scale sweet. model of her the MQ-1 drone. Predator. Can you get a Lego Predator? Because that's what I really want. Yeah, so for the babies. Yeah. For the kids. Yeah. <laughs> Would Lego consider that a brand fit? Would they make drone Predator drones? <laughs> Not sure. You can make your own Predator drone, among other things with Legos. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our roster of other great podcasts at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Don't forget when you download the podcast, or even if you've already subscribed, please, please, leave, please leave a rating uh, and a comments on iTunes. We've been getting some great comments and great ratings in the iTunes library. We really appreciate that. Please keep that up. And if you friend. write us on Facebook, we might even write you back. Yeah, we'll totally write you back. We'll totally write you back. And if you're Raytheon and you want to sponsor us... <laughs> the bank just, account number is... Just, just send... Say know, the word, Raytheon. Just tweet at us, Raytheon. We miss you. Raytheon, we're a Harry's Razors. Harry's <laughs> Razors, Raytheon. Northrop. Sure, we'll take it all. Um, and send us a little drone models, too, Stamps. while you're at com. it. <laughs> Uh, the show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by my mom. No. No. Just she's still listening by now. <laughs> it's a good test to see yeah, if she's she put this thing down. She's doing laundry. Are you kidding? <laughs> she's like, what? The- I think our music was performed by Quinta and the Predators. Quinta and the Predators. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, no, of course, our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. Uh, thank you to her. On behalf of my um, not-rested and not-ready friends, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 